Hello and welcome to the season eight finale of the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm your host, journalist Holly Rubenstein, and here each week I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with, to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. You may have first got to know today's guest as the bad boy of the reality TV show Made in Chelsea. Now married with three children to model Vogue Williams, who he met on the TV show The Jump, he regularly tops the podcast charts as a co-host of the hilarious hit podcast Spencer and Vogue, as well as entertaining listeners with his former Made in Chelsea co-star Jamie Lang on the podcast Six Degrees from Jamie and Spencer. It is, of course, Spencer Matthews. Spencer has led a truly international life. Not many people can say they grew up in a hotel on a small Caribbean island. And it was so interesting to chat to him about life there and how it shaped who he is today. He'll be talking about his relationships with his old Maiden Chelsea co-stars. And we also talk about Spencer's recent time in the pool. Spencer's older brother Michael tragically died climbing Mount Everest in 1999 and Spencer has collaborated with Disney to make a documentary film called Finding Michael about the journey to try and find his body which was never brought home. I think this is the first time he's spoken at length about the documentary and I was really touched by his honesty about such a monumental experience to go through and what it meant to him and his family. In fact, Spencer has taken on a number of huge challenges that we talk about on today's episode in memory of his brother, taking him from the Sahara Desert to Arctic Sweden. And alongside that, he takes us from the south of France and Morocco to New York City and Paris and much more. So let's get started. Spencer Matthews, welcome to The Travel Diaries. It's amazing to see you today. How are you? Holly Rubenstein, it's uh, a great pleasure to be on, on this fine podcast. And I'm very well, thank you very much. Thank you so much for being here. And I mean, I have to say, it's amazing to see you, but I am also a little bit distracted by the amazing clothes that I am seeing hanging behind you that are your wife, your wife's amazing attire there. I'm like slightly distracted thinking I'm very jealous. <laughs> I was about to say, don't be fooled. None of this is, is mine. It's all Vogue's. Uh, <laughs> this is where I come for um, complete peace and quiet. You know, we have three children, as I'm sure you're aware. The house is usually yeah. full. Um, Vogue's sister and brother are currently with us as well. So if I need total silence, the closet is is the answer. <laughs> Otherwise, there's, there's no guarantees otherwise. <laughs> so obviously, um, I mean, looking into your life story, travel is a really big feature because you've had a really international life. Um, yeah, I j jumped around a lot as a kid in particular, mm, um, yeah. changed schools, you know, probably more than, than, than most, nothing to do with, uh, me, might I add just, just the fact, just the family, uh, Moved around a bit. You know, I grew up in Cornton, which I don't think many people will have heard of. It's it's a small, uh, and when I say small, I mean like tiny town. Like, you know, every single person in the town, you can cycle around the town in six or seven minutes, you know, tiny, tiny. And it's just next to, to Newark, 
Um, and if you haven't heard of Newark, that's close to Nottingham. So right. um, they grew up in a, in a beautiful house um, in Cornton, uh, kind of surrounded by family, earliest memories. Uh, and then when I was very young, we, we moved to Paris um, for like a year and a half. So, And how was that? How did you feel about that at the time? I mean, at the time, I, I was far too young to, to care or, or really not. I didn't even realize that what we were doing was an important move. It just felt cool and different and you know I, I think at that age you know I was I was literally finger painting at, at the time um so right right, right. um I hadn't forged any um you know very serious relationships I think you know I, I can remember leaving my I had a couple of pals uh, <laughs> uh Matthew and Nicholas who god I haven't thought about them for a very long time uh, but obviously <laughs> kind of didn't see much of them um after that moved to moved to Paris and made new friends with a, a young lady called Judith who I remember was bouncing on on my parents' bed one day and put purple ink all over the ceiling. <laughs> this is already a, a big trip down memory lane. I, I yeah, I haven't thought about kind of Paris. I went to a, a I, I call it crash now. My God, my wife is Irish, as you know. Um, so so I call it crash. I went to kind of you know preschool uh, over in Paris, but it was amazing. I remember walking every day uh, to school. We could see the Eiffel Tower. We walked down past all of these beautiful little markets in Paris, just, uh, on the side of the Seine, you know, and, and they would sell all these kind of gemstones. And I was obsessed with fool's gold. I don't know if you, if you remember yeah. or know fool's gold, I would just, yeah. I, I loved it. And kind of every so often I'd, I'd nudge my dad into buying me like a little piece of fool's gold. And I had this little gem, collection so that's kind of most of what I remember from from Paris but it was great and I, and I, and I loved it and I've always had a Paris has always had a special place in my heart mm. and so chapter one of your travel diaries is your earliest childhood travel memory I guess beyond Paris then what would that be probably the south of France um like Antibes and and and, and Cannes my, my godfather um who's just the most incredible man like, I just love him you know those people who are just always themselves and just always kind of joyful and, and just generous and, and happy, right? Like I've got, I'm very lucky to have a godfather like him. Um, and he lives in this, in this beautiful town called La Colle sur Loup, um, which is right next to Saint-Paul-de-Vence. Um, you may have heard mm -hmm. of Saint-Paul-de-Vence, maybe not La Colle yeah. sur Loup. Saint-Paul-de-Vence is, is kind of famous for its art and sculptures and there's this, and the there's light. This, yeah, and there's this beautiful restaurant, and the views are just fantastic. And there's this beautiful restaurant um, up there called La Colombe d'Or, which has original kind of Picassos running through it. I think they have 300 million euros worth of art or something on, on the yeah. walls. Um, and it's the, the artists used to come through and, and doodle on stuff and napkins in, for food, right? So it's long before they were, well, obviously they became notorious, you know, post-death, but, but they... It's when, you know, they were struggling for cash. So they would go to La Colombe d'Or and they would they would paint uh, in order to eat. And the place is just full of these, well, masterpieces, I guess. Um, so, you know, very rich, you know, artistic culture up there. And, it, and it's just a really beautiful part of the world. So I remember going to see him, you know, a lot, kind of every year. Uh, and, and, you know, he would treat me like his son, I guess. They're just great people. So the, the, that's probably my earliest memory. That's a beautiful memory. And and then I guess on top of that, was it at around the age of seven, you you then moved your life and to the Caribbean? 
again i mean i moved yeah yeah, again i I didn't have much to do with uh with that like mum, we're moving to the caribbean yeah yeah exactly well coincidentally it was actually with my godfather uh my parents and my and my godparents went sailing in in the caribbean uh i don't remember the sailing to be honest but they arrived kind of in saint bart's as part of their journey uh, loved it. And this isn't the St. Bart's. I mean, if people are listening and they know St. Bart's, this is a very different St. Bart's, right? This is this is St. Bart's in 1993, I believe. And just, just a totally different deal to what you might know or expect now. So, so what, if paint a picture of St. Bart's in 93, then what, what was it like? Just completely kind of organic and just very, you know, unpretentious and very kind of behind the times almost. It was just... Very casual, you know, surf shacks, surfers, panini shops, you know, just, just, you know, cheeseburgers and chips everywhere. Just, just super relaxed, right? No huge wealth Not glitzy. to speak of. Yeah. No big New Year's Eve parties, nothing really. It was a very local uh, place uh, and, you know, tourism wasn't really big either there. You know, it was a kind of unknown gem in the Caribbean, French-speaking, different to its neighbouring islands, and just a really kind of interesting, lovely place to be. And at the time, um, there was a hotel there called called Eden Rock, and it was built by a gentleman called Remy de Hainan, who was a really interesting bloke. Uh, he used to carry a revolver uh, and just was a, a proper adventurer you know and he was the first man to land a plane on St. Bart's he was the first mayor of St. Bart's and was just a huge kind of lover of life big character had all kinds of incredible guests stay at this hotel you know Howard Hughes was a regular Greta Garbo uh was it was a regular it was amazing right and and my parents a real heritage yeah it was fantastic and my parents stayed there and it was you know it was four bedrooms at the time I think and just perhaps really not what you'd expect, like very beautiful, built on a rock that was protruding out of, of Saint-Jean Bay and, uh, you know, fantastic, but but kind of damp, you know, cockroaches, cats, you know, like, you know, it, it wasn't what you you might think it would be. And um, and as time passed, my, my parents bought the place and we are, you know, this is this is back in the day, so it's, it's not at all. Again, you know, the kind of money you might think it would be, you know, this is a long time ago, small islands, you know, no notoriety to speak of, um, just a beautiful, interesting property and bought it as a house, like a place to be and then kept it on as a hotel. And it became my parents career, I suppose, kept it on. And it's now, you know, the Eden Rock that I don't know, you, you may have heard of, or some people mm. might know, you know, it's, uh, it's yeah. pretty exciting and interesting place. One of the most place. popular and hotels in the Caribbean. It's, uh, it's, it's a great, it's a wonderful place and just so much work has gone into it and it's just grown and evolved over time so much. Uh, and, and it's been interesting in each of its phases, actually, you know, not one isn't necessarily better than the other. Uh, but I grew up there, right? So I grew up in the hotel and as I said, you know, it's not, it's not like growing up in a hotel you know, it's not how you might imagine it. It, it was quite uh, different, but certainly very peculiar and, and 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 you know, full of wonder and interesting things for a kid. Right? It was just it was just really yeah. exciting, and you know, I feel like I, I had a probably quite a different childhood to most. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I find that so fascinating to grow up on a small island, having lived in cities prior to that you know were you suited to island life like how did you love to spend your time there I think everything was 
you know interesting and fascinating at that age you know we i you know we had all kinds of interest you know we'd go to the beach obviously like you could wander out there's very little crime in st bars in fact you know it's said to be crime free leave your house keys in your car you know you could put your watch on the oh, dashboard of your car whatever you know it's fine yeah so we would wander around and became i guess you know independent quite early because you know my parents would be perfectly happy to let us just go and play on the beach the beach is you know over a kilometer long and we'd go to the very end of it and you know find a cave and have fun in caves and climb hills and and do whatever it's just different to uh, as you say being in a city but you know I, I made some some friends there and then of course because we kept it on as a hotel each year we would have guests come through the hotel and they would have kids so it's kind of there was always fresh fun to be had with with you know kids and parents alike St. Bart's is, is really seasonal, so it depends on the kind of holiday you're looking for. If if you're looking for you know, glamorous, glitzy parties that have incredibly interesting people, I suppose, you know, flowing out the doors, then, then you know, there's like a two-week period in December that's really exciting and interesting, I suppose. If you have three kids like like me, it's it's less interesting now at that time, although, you know, throughout my 20s, that was the place to be, I guess. You know, we... I'm going to go in October, I think, which is far quieter. Like the hotel's just reopened. Uh, there's, you know, the staff all have six to eight weeks um, where they go home, and you know, there's it's the down season in St. Bart's. So lots of restaurants are shut. There's very few people there. We love it at that time, obviously, because you know it's just you have the the freedom to kind of operate, mm-hmm. you know, however you like, and. You know, we love just heading to a beach and taking water with us and get, getting getting away from stuff, not people per se, but just being able to just relax on the beach is nice instead of being, you know, within the hotel all of the time. But, you know, there, there's fantastic shopping, there's fantastic hiking, sightseeing, it, you know, the, the, pretty much whatever you like. There's water skiing, wakeboarding, parasailing. If you're into riding, there's horses, you know, there's all kinds of stuff. It's 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 very difficult to be bored, I think, over there. Oh, and, and you went to school there, so and you are bilingual as a result. Yeah, so that's something that I'm, you know, really grateful for. I remember first day of school over there, one other kid I think spoke English. Um, no teachers spoke English at all, yeah. um, and I was, I think, I was six. So, so you know, you're you're really thrown in the deep end, but you know, you pick it up alarmingly quickly because you don't have a choice like your brain's like a sponge at that stage and you know you just retain information like nobody's business so actually in five six weeks you're speaking french you know pretty well yeah because at least you know what how to communicate you know you may not have all of the um, vocabulary and you might get the odd tense wrong but from communicating with people you understand what they're saying and how they're saying it right it's not i think if you were to sit down and take a french exam you'd fail it but you know communicating with somebody in front of you is is becomes um quite easy quite quickly and then of course you build on that absolutely well let's pause there and move on to chapter two and that is the first place that you fell in love with it would have to be st bart's wouldn't it yeah i was thinking it would be yeah yeah. it kind of of has to be i mean i still feel like it's home you know when the plane door opens and I step out of the plane in St. Bart's, I like I feel this sense of being at home. That's so nice. Yeah, it's lovely. Um, and, you know, th- that that was my first real love, you know, and it always will be, you know. And it's just fun to have kind of grown up there. So through all the different stages of my life, I've lived them there. But I've been very different people kind of growing up. I've changed an awful lot over the years. 
and that island is will always have a special place in my heart for kind of each of those transformative periods yeah Yeah. you know so it's kind of it's just interesting there's so much um of my history is there yeah well I mean interesting that you talk about like changing so much because I mean I obviously have to briefly touch on how we first got to know you um on on our tv screens in in Maiden Chelsea at that time you know you were the notorious kind of bad boy weren't you I mean how do you feel looking back at the t- that time in your life because I, I know that maybe you might have like mixed feelings about it but then at the same time I guess it's how we how we all got to to know you first yeah look I often joke about you know I I, I say negative things about Made in Chelsea from time to time not to be you know un- ungrateful I, I loved Made in Chelsea at the time right the the kind of character that I played was a very conscious decision you know and I wanted to create drama for the show I saw that as doing my job well Right, I've ne- I never saw Made in Chelsea as being completely real, right? And I know that that's mm-hmm. probably not what people want to hear. I-, I saw it as a job, I saw it as a product that we're making, and I wanted to make that product as addicting and as you know good as possible, you know, by behaving in a certain way. And I think some people got that, and some people didn't. And I think in reality, in actual reality, if you're filmed just being yourself with your friends, that is boring and the show will be cancelled. So I think providing we're having a good time making it, we had to figure out ways to entertain, right? It's an Absolutely, entertainment yeah. show. Yeah. So, And it was an award-winning entertainment show as well. I mean, winning, winning a BAFTA was something that I, I never expected. Um, in, <laughs> in fact, Sarah Dillastone, who I love, you know, who was the exact producer of the show, um, and we had a marvelous relationship kind of from the very beginning. We just, just kind of understood that, you know, we could get mutually, you know, gain things from one another. Right. Uh, and we had an amazing working relationship and just understood what was necessary, right. For the show to be very popular. And she said to me kind of a day before the BAFTA, uh, she was like, if you, if we win the BAFTA, you should write, a, you, you should be the one to speak. And I said, um, yeah, but we're not going to win the BAFTA, so I wouldn't worry about it. And, and, and this is coming from the most confident bloke in, in the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I just, I just couldn't, I couldn't for a single second imagine that, you know, this isn't the People's Choice BAFTA either. This is a BAFTA, like, you know, the Academy yeah. voted for this. So I was just thinking in the back of my mind, look, there's, there's just no chance of this, right? Because I... And, and still have, you know, preconceived, you know, perceptions of shows like this, right? And I just mm-hmm. imagined that those would be amplified by those that sat on the Academy board and, you know, just figured we had no chance. Anyway, long story short, we obviously win the BAFTA and I hadn't written anything, right? And, you know, this is back when I used to drink alcohol and, you know, we, we were, we'd had a lot to drink. And when we won, I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm supposed to say something now so so you're kind of walking up to to the you know stage <laughs> at the BAFTAs and can't even really rem- I just think I thanks everyone and just let everyone know um and looking back at it you know I wish I'd done a better job but I was just I think I mentioned how difficult how much how time consuming and how much energy goes into creating a show like this even though everyone just thinks that we turn up and film you know there's an awful lot that goes on and anyway, I wish I hadn't said that but but whatever um so so it's kind of, so we won a BAFTA and it was it was amazing so uh, you look it, it's it's bittersweet for me right that show because because obviously it was it and remains you know very popular looking back at it would I do I wish I had behaved differently like 
yes and no, because again, I don't think the show would have been popular without certain people being certain ways. Mm. Um, and to be honest, it doesn't really stick, right? Like the, the title of Maiden Chelsea sticks, but I'm not sure anyone really sees me in that way anymore. You know, it's been a very no. long time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have three beautiful kids with an amazing wife who I, you know, who is just my best friends. And, and, you know, so it's, I'm quite sure people have made the distinction between that show and growing up. Um, but still, you know, it's, I would never watch it back. You know, never. Just, would you not? No, would it make for, you cringe? Oh, forget it. I wouldn't be able to. And also I never really <laughs> watched it then. Right. Cause mm-hmm. it's not, as I said, to me, like, of course, the situations in the show are, real but to me it was purely for entertainment purposes i just never I, I i couldn't i couldn't wrap my head around actually allowing people into my real life because the whole thing mm. to me was a caricature and i mean a lot of the obviously you're doing things with jamie all the time but a lot of the original that the original crew have had like quite a lot of big stuff going on in the last kind of year or so like do you stay in touch with them do you, do you reach out to them much I, I just uh trained with jamie this morning that's why i'm so so jamie jamie remains you know my best friend i have i have you know two three best friends in 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 the world you know and i can count my friends on on one hand you know i purposefully keep a pretty tight group and uh, jamie is is right up there i love jamie like jamie is so infectious he's a brilliant person um he's hilarious he's a very hard worker and, and there's just so much to admire in jamie i i haven't seen the rest of them in, in you know at all really so really yeah no it's not it's kind of like it was a moment in time yeah I just I see it as a as a job right it's kind of like I don't mm-hmm. keep in touch with you know and anyone really from my cap when I was a forward foreign exchange broker you know I, I'm no longer a forward foreign exchange broker so I, I don't see them anymore you know it's like yeah many years ago I was a barman like I don't keep in touch with them either right so it's, it's kind of like you know I think I progress through through life uh at my own pace and, and, you know, enjoy people, you know, along the way with, you know, some people remaining close and others not. I think there's, there's a lot of change. There's been so much change in my life that it's very difficult to keep constant with groups of people and friends. And, you know, one thing that I certainly found, um, you know, as I became far more sober for a start, sober, far more driven, far busier right with with clinko firstly i have very little time to to socialize and i don't really miss it right so like so it's kind of so absorbed by what i'm doing and 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 my family that actually going to the pub for 5 hours with 10 mates on a sunday is just something that i'm not interested in currently right so i don't miss it because i feel that what we're doing is really meaningful. And I believe that we can make a difference to the lives of millions of people with what we're doing with Clinko. So that that supersedes any kind of social life that I might want at the moment. I'm not saying I don't have fun, right? I told you I have my you know friends, but it's it's every couple of weeks that we might get together and do something, you know, and it's a dinner type thing. Yeah, I, I mean, it's so hard with three kids as well to just find the time to do that. So I'm impressed that you're doing that, to be honest. There you go. So w- let's chat about Clinko. It, it's doing so incredibly well. well you're, you're expecting a child as well, no? 
I am, yeah. We, so we, I've, I've had must, nothing. We must send <laughs> you a, a case of our finest goods. Oh, that would be amazing. It would be so nice to actually feel like, it's so nice to feel like you're still part of something. I think that's a really important part of what Clinker has to offer because you feel as though yeah. you are not disconnected from the social situation that you're taking part in. Yeah. And and listen, I, I, I'm very thankful that I'm a guest on, on your podcast and we will go back to travel. But one thing that you will find particularly nowadays with me is that a lot of the the things that I'm going to talk about later won't have happened or wouldn't have happened without sobriety uh, and, and Clinko. And for those of you that don't know what Clinko is, just very quickly, you know, not to turn this into an advert, but just so that it makes sense, we make non-alcoholic spirit alternatives. So, so we have three gins, rum, whiskey coming out very soon, tequila, vodka with no alcohol, alcohol, you know, non-alcoholic liquids, and you mix them like you would mix an ordinary cocktail with, you know, their alcoholic counterpart, and you get the kind of full flavor and the ritual and experience of making yourself a cocktail um, without any of the negative, you know, repercussions of the alcohol. Uh, and we're not anti-alcohol, and I'm not anti-alcohol, uh, but it was just to offer people a choice with very little compromise when it comes to making yourself a drink. So, you know, I feel like a gin and tonic, but I don't feel like drinking. Have a clean gin and tonic. Same, same. No alcohol. So chapter three is a place where you learned the most about yourself. Definitely the Sahara Desert. What were you doing there? So, so I did, um, I did a, quite a famous race called the, the Marathon des Sables. Wow. And, and that is a, it's a kind of 240 kilometer, uh, like six and a half marathon race. Um, across the Sahara, not the whole Sahara, of course, but a portion of the Sahara over five days. And it's it's quite brutal. And, you know, anyone who's done it will tell you that it's tough. Um, and I think you know that it's tough going into it. But it's um, yeah. it certainly, for me, it was, it was a really cathartic, you know, stripping you bare um, experience where, of course, um, you learn a lot about yourself. We did it in October, which is the first time the race has ever been held in October. Because of COVID, it was delayed uh, for two full years. And I think the race organizer just wanted to get the show back on the road. They've already announced that they will never, ever do it in October again. Because the temperature was 10 degrees to 15 degrees hotter than it usually is. So we were running one oh day in, in, in 59 degrees C. Oh my God. Um, so about about double the heat of a very hot holiday. To give you an example, St. Bart's in the height of summer is 30 degrees, 31 degrees. Well, yeah, most of the people listening here in the UK will remember how we were like suffering when it was high 30s and you know, the heat wave here. So running it an ultra marathon in that yeah so we were in 59 degrees not all the time but it was you know it was um it, it was it was it was really full-on you know there was a lot of sunstroke um there was uh there was a death um there, there people have died before um doing this race but it hadn't happened in a while um usually only about five to ten percent of people drop out of the race um this year 65 percent of people didn't make it 840 Gosh. started and only about 390 finished um i think and it was just it was it was just really it was really full-on right like it was just you know i don't think there was much comfort and, and you know i think the day that i learned the most about myself was probably day four it was it's an 82 and a half kilometer 
day. So it's a double marathon day. Obviously, you've ran roughly a marathon a day the three days prior to this, you know, and, and then you've got a double marathon on the fourth day and that was it was tough like that was really hard <laughs> and like and i can i can remember oh and also by the way so i didn't my brother-in-law finds this the funniest thing about the whole thing i didn't take earpods or any music or any podcasts or anything so i was just i i i didn't take my headphones because i didn't think that i was hearing i was reading a lot about people saving weight and not taking anything so so i didn't have anything with me and like everyone was listening to stuff or had music to pump them up or like, I had nothing right so like so th- this this <laughs> the whistling of the desert wind was just yeah yeah so so very long time to be alone with your thoughts um yeah. you know not 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 reading not listening to anything just just alone I think that 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 day took me 14 hours and 20 minutes or something something like that you know we started at we started at 8 30 I think we finished at you know, I think I can't remember. It was very, it was very dark by the time we finished. Um, and it was, it was emotionally kind of pretty bruising that day because, you know, runners listening to this will know that pretty difficult to run that in one go, let alone in the conditions that we're in, in the desert, you know, very sandy sand's not hard at all. Cause there's been no water whatsoever. So it's just very soft sand, you know, for most of it. And yeah, I just, I just remember thinking about my wife, my kids a lot, but also just, you know, slowly getting from checkpoint to checkpoint. And, you know, by the time the sun went down and it, you know, started to get cool and it was pitch black and you're, you know, fishing around for your headlamp so that you can even see, you know, in front of you, I had 30 kilometers left, I think, you know, and it's just like, and it's just, it's just long, 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 long. And you, you, you realize that a Nims Persia from 14 peaks is a good friend of mine said this in his film, you know, when, when you think you're effed, you're, you're only about 40% effed, right? Like, or I can't quite remember what he said, but you know, he, he basically makes, you know, said when you feel like you simply cannot go any further, that is nonsense. You're not even halfway, right? You can push yourself. Mm-hmm. Like the human body and the human mind is very capable of taking a lot more than you think it can. Um, so, so yeah, look, I mean, there's no option as well. Like you can leave, of course. You've got a button you can press on your on your uh, on your pack that calls a helicopter and choppers you out of the desert. Um, you don't want to be doing. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. And what a great partnership. If you're a longtime listener of the Travel Diaries, you probably know that we love to put our home on Airbnb when we're traveling. Like last autumn when we took the family to Puglia, we put our house on Airbnb when otherwise it would just be sitting empty, which meant that we earned some extra money that went towards our flights and maybe some souvenirs too. Hosting on Airbnb for us is also a family affair. My mum is an Airbnb super host. She regularly has guests stay in her little chalet in her garden. And my dad, who lives in France, has his home on Airbnb so that when he comes back to visit, he is earning some extra money while he's away. My dad is 80 and he only started hosting on Airbnb a couple of years ago. So hopefully that shows you how straightforward the whole experience is. He found it so easy to list his house that I think he's got all his pals signing up now too. And it really is straightforward. You can choose whether you want to rent out your entire home or just some rooms. Alex and I, for example, list our spare bedroom and that works really well for us. So if you have a trip coming up and you want to earn some extra money while you're away... 
your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. That's airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb. Wow, I mean, what a thing to go through. And interesting, actually, that you mentioned NIMS as somebody who gave you some advice that kept me motivated because I know that you've teamed up with him recently on a really important and exciting new project that you've got coming up. Yeah. So, I mean, since I was young, I've wanted to do, uh, what, what we just did. Um, you know, never, never thought that we'd have Disney as a partner or, or anything like that. And, you know, have always been unclear as to how to go about this, but for, for several years now, there's been, um, I've been kind of aching to understand more about my brother, Michael's death he was uh the youngest brit to reach the summit of mount everest back in 1999 age 22 he's very different to me so that's not why he did it <laughs> he uh, he's just um he was an incredibly modest thoughtful kind kid um very talented uh amazing you know trader broker um just a very interesting well-rounded person uh and his life was lost on, on everest um i was 10 at mm. the time Gosh. um and I always just remember thinking it was you know very unfair you know as as any kind of kid might you know hold resentment towards the death of, of a loved one you know i never really processed it fully um i always believed that i'd kind of see him again i never really took it on the chin that he had died I remember thinking it was impossible at the time that Mike is, you know, the strongest, the best, you know, that this is some kind of mistake. Mm. Um, and as such, it never really, it never crushed me in the way that it, you know, affected my parents and, you know, brother, obviously who were older than me and understood the reality of the situation far faster and easier than I did. Mm -hmm. um, and we would read, you know, that, bodies could be recovered from Everest now. You know, I think you can, well, it's not, I think, sorry, I, I know now you can fly helicopters into camp two for people that are unfamiliar with Everest. That's quite a big deal. Essentially there's, you know, the, yeah, from base camp, there's then the Kumbu Icefall leading up to camp one. And then camp two is at the end of a kind of some degree of altitude, but long kind of plane right at the base of what you would think was, you know, the beginning of the climb, essentially, you know, and, um, and it's, uh, it made, it makes it for, it makes it easier to, to, you know, bring bodies down. I mean, it's not easy, but bringing bodies down the mountain, you know, requires a lot of manpower, but it, but getting them to camp, to camp two can be done. And then of course you can helicopter out of there. So it's, it's kind of, my mind would just race in that, well, you know, we need to get Mike off the mountain. Um, mm. And I've always been uncomfortable with the idea of him being up there, you know, possibly in plain sight. You know, a lot of people climb Everest nowadays. I think 600 people a year summit Everest. And was always quite uncomfortable that he could just be laying up there, you know, as like some kind of tourist attraction. Um, oh, but also, gosh. you know... But but also kind of on on his own, you know, away from us. He obviously died up up there. His last thoughts were probably about how he's never going to see his family again. And 
I don't know. I've always been uncomfortable with him being up there. I've always wanted to bring him home. To have that closure. Yeah. I mean, you know, we we we, we had a memorial service, but we, we were, of course, never able to see his body and, you know, have not seen him in 23 years. Um, so uh, set out to to go to Everest and, and to try and find him and bring him home. And we, we made a documentary feature film about it. And uh, it's called Finding Michael, and it'll be out in in February of of twenty twenty three. And where, you know, I want my brother to have some kind of legacy for his, you know, his bravery at the time. Not so much that people just know his name, but that you know that we can then use his name and legacy to to do more good than we currently do so we have a we have a foundation called the michael matthews foundation and we look after about five thousand kids in africa and we house them and feed them and educate them you know that we we build boarding schools essentially um and although it's great i'd love to do more and i'd love to grow that to help you know as many kids as possible not necessarily only in africa i'd like to do some stuff here as well and i think it's you know it's very difficult to get any kind of traction with stuff like this you know it's you know for example running the marathon de sable you know doing the ice ultra i've ran five marathons before all of this and you do a number of things to raise money and of course you know we can be quite successful in in fundraising but but not to the level to make an actual difference you know long lasting change and i'd like mike's name to be used for that and i know that he mm-hmm. would be proud of that so i guess i'm hoping that people watch the film get to know him a bit understand what he went through uh and want to help right because mm-hmm. i think it would be a nice thing to be able to do more good however that may come well that's a really beautiful thing to do and yeah i, I really look forward to seeing how the experience played out because I know that for whether you're you know you were dealing with going through I imagine a a huge amount of um, a lifetime of emotion working through that in an extreme environment but for anybody who is in that kind of environment whether they're dealing with something like that or not it's another place where you learn a lot about yourself isn't it? Yeah, well, it, this would have been a, a good answer for the previous question, I guess, uh, as as well. Um, I mean, for those who have not trekked to Everest Base Camp, please do it. It is so spellbindingly beautiful. It is so cool, the trek. And you don't need to be Superman or Superwoman to do it either. You're fine. You know, you'll hear a lot of people say that it's really difficult. I, I'm I'm sure it can be, but it, you'll be fine. Trust me, it's, it's it's all right. And it is, it is so cool, right? And 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 like, there's this somewhere that will always stick with me is this little town called Namche Bazaar. You just don't expect it at all. By this stage, you're already up in the clouds, right? You've been walking for days. You're above cloud level, so right. you know past a certain point in the day, the cloud becomes thick. Well, certainly the weather that we had, the cloud became thick, and you're looking down at thick cloud. So you're up in the sky, right? And you turn like this corner, and you come across this town, but it's like a full-on town in the sky, in the right? Clouds. And it's wow. it's it's amazing. It's like it reminded me of kind of like I I, I love 
Thor in the MCU and stuff. It reminds me of kind of like Asgard. It's just middle of nowhere, up up in up in the mountains, so far away from anything. I think you're 40 miles away from the nearest actual town. No roads, no cars. You can only walk in and out. So you're miles away from like any other civilization. There's schools there, there's bars, coffee shops, pizzerias. <laughs> and it's just like, I found it so amazing you're you're really high altitude as well at this point i think you're above the 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 summit of mont blanc by this stage wow right it's it's kind of like you're 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 really you're really up and in it and it's kind of like walking upstairs quickly at this at this stage is is like i'm pretty fit i love sport takes your breath away walking up a flight of stairs you know you will feel tired from doing that and it's just yeah i remember it just being so charming and like all of these colorful little roofs everywhere and kind of just over the years People have walked in with bricks and, you know, materials to build this town on ox back and on horseback and carrying it themselves. You know, we lift weights in the gym, right? Jamie and I, these guys carry like this one guy walked past us and he was carrying like 150 kilos of gear on his back on this big wooden thing. And it's just like. Nuts. You wouldn't get you wouldn't get ten meters with that thing on your back, and like I was twice the size of this bloke, and I was just like, God, it's amazing. So anyway, so they also, of course, can helicopter in stuff, but that's you know very expensive up there. So it's kind of, it, I find it kind of amazing, and like you're told not to eat certain things because you would see, like somebody walking in with meat, like a you know a dead goat, for example, and like it would just be covered in fly it would just look like obviously kind of inedible and the guy would say that's going up to namche and it'll be served as kind of goat curry so make sure you don't have the goat curry and it's like <laughs> you know the, the bloke's been walking for six days oh to get God. it there with wow. no refrigeration right so it's kind of i don't know i found i found the whole thing to just be so interesting and yeah. i kind of i had the good fortune of you know bear grills is involved in the project as well and uh-huh. Has of course done Everest. He became the youngest when he summited a year after Mike, um, oh, really? because he was a year older than Mike. So he stepped into Mike's record as such, which you know, obviously, you couldn't wish wish it for a better bloke. I, I love Bear so much. He's just such a legend, and he's exactly how, how you'd imagine him to be. Just, Is just he? oh, he like he's exactly how you think he would be. Just perfect so cool and we did some filming for this so he's in the film uh he's also a producer of the film and uh, i called him when i was in namche and um and we just had a really good facetime catch up about you know about namche and because he's familiar with it and he he just loves it there as well he just thinks it's so interesting and exciting and it, it is it's like it's, it's unbelievable honestly like it, it's i can't i struggle to explain it but i can't wait for that i, I can't wait for that moment in the film where we come around the corner and see Namche because it's just like, what is this doing here? Surreal. Like, like, it's amazing. We had a pizza. It was delicious. Like, we went (laughs) out for pizza and I don't drink, but, like, everyone was having beers and, you know, we were playing pool in a pool bar, the same pool bar that Mike was in, um, you know, and and it was uh, was just really amazing. Like, you know, part of the film is that we retrace uh, the exact steps that Mike and his friends took uh 23 years ago so you know we stay in the same places and do the same path and you know experience the same things and it was uh yeah i think it'll be a really powerful amazing film and i i want to see i've kind of 
never looked forward to something more because I'm so eager for people to see it because nothing to do with me. Like I, I just, I just want people to see it and understand it. It was the most kind of meaningful moment of my life, you know, filming this thing. We, we went and filmed this five days after Otto was born. So five like, days. Wow. Yeah. We, I was away for five and a half weeks, um, which was really hard. Right. Like, you know, I love my kids. Um, but you know, that climbers who listen to this or, you know, anyone who knows about Everest will know that there's very specific weather, weather windows yeah. where you can climb Everest. And, and, you know, we had to, it was either Otto's born and, you know, we'll push the whole thing back a year or we'll just get, do it, you know, now, cause we're ready. So, you know, it was a, it was a tough decision, but my wife is just the, the coolest like woman in the world. Um, and she said, look, if it was me, I would do it. Right. So that's, uh, she was like, if the shoe was on the other, she's incredibly, you guys have an amazing driven. relationship. We're very lucky. And yeah, we, we do It's you know, we, 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 you know, every so often try and remind ourselves of that, but it's, uh, we're, we're very fortunate. I think, well, I'm certainly very fortunate to have her and I hope she feels the same way. Mm. Um, but she's, um, yeah, you know, she's always felt incredibly close to Mike. Obviously she's never met him. Well, you know, we have photos of Mike around the house and, you know, I've never felt closer to Mike than filming this, obviously. Yeah. I'm, you know, I, I'm going to slip and give stuff away if I carry on, but please watch the film um, because it's a really powerful tale of brotherly love. Incredible. Thank you so much for sharing about that incredibly meaningful uh, experience. I can't, I, I really look forward to, to watching the documentary. So th- let's move on now to the the big chapter chapter four your all-time favorite destination spencer where comes to mind today all-time favorite destination um it's such a tough one because obviously you know the world is full of the most incredible places we love new york i say we like my wife and i love new york of course saint Bart's gets a mention south of france i think italy has so much to offer I really enjoyed my time in Australia when I was there, South Africa, you know, it, it's very difficult to, to honestly put, put a, put a pin on it. California, you know, I went to university in, in California. It's just, I, I loved it. I'm pretty easy kind of anywhere, to be honest. I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm really comfortable in most places. I don't need, you know, huge amount, you know, like I, I honestly took like I would do the marathon de sable again, right? Because I, I just loved it. Like I, I just found the whole thing to be so powerful, and I loved the experience of doing it. Um, and then you know you go to Saint Bart's, you stay at the Eden Rock. It's totally different, but it's <laughs> yeah. but it's like but there's there's joy in both things, right? And what one is kind of more meaningful almost than the other, but one holds a more special place in your heart, I guess. But yeah, you know, I guess. Uh, Sorry, I'm just, I'm just dancing around your point. I have another question, actually, though. As somebody who grew up in a hotel and knows like the ins and outs of like what really makes a good hotel, which you must have really got quite a keen eye for now. Aside from Eden Rock, then, is there one that you really feel like comes to mind? Is like nailing what the perfect hotel is. I can be a real hotel snob. <laughs> not in like a, not in a kind of like, well, I'm never coming back here again. But like, I do feel that detail is so important, right? Yeah. Like little details. Yeah. I think hotels obviously come in so many different shapes and sizes. We've stayed at a, a beautiful place called the Palais Namaskar in Morocco um, as well, which is kind of literally in the middle of nowhere, but so grand and 
interesting and kind of beautiful right and like spacious and you wander the grounds of the hotel and you feel like you're kind of almost at a at a in a small version of the Taj Mahal type thing it's just a great big thing which I'm sure some people would really love and you know others might not but I enjoyed my stay there um in New York we stayed at a, a hotel called the Mark I love the Bowery uh, you know, the, the, all very different, right? The Bowery is just kind of rich with heritage as well. You know, lots of kind of dark woods and, you know, interesting part of town. And it's just, you know, lots of interesting people floating in and out of the Bowery. You know, it's kind of a Good cool people place. Watching. Yeah, it's a cool place. It's a great place to people watch. I couldn't care less about, you know, celebrities or or whatever. Well, I say that I've got a podcast where we literally track down celebrities, but I think that was <laughs> Jamie's idea. Um, no, but it, it's just, you know, it was, I was, I was in the Bowery recently on, I was in New York on business for four days last week and uh, I was in the Bowery and kind of, you know, Jared Leto waltzes in and goes up to his room and then <laughs> who else was there? I saw loads of kind of interesting people and, you know, it, it's just good fun, right. If you like that type of thing. Um, but also the rooms are great. The service is great. There's this amazing guy called Leo who's, who kind of, you know, runs a ship, big bearded guys. Fantastic. So I think a lot of, a lot of good hotels are made by the kind of management and the people who work there and the kind of experience that, that you have, right. At the end of the day, um, you know, are you spending loads of time in your hotel room or is it more just the experience of being in that particular part of the world that you're after, um, you know, I don't know. I typically don't spend much time in, in my hotel room. So do I care if I have some whopping great big suite or some small room, you know, as long as it has a bed and a shower, I don't really care. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be in the room at all. You know, give me a beach and a, and a, and a, and a sun lounger anywhere. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be in the room. Happy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, brilliant. Well, chapter five is your hidden gem and that is a place that you love that maybe my listeners wouldn't know so much about okay can it be a restaurant yeah it can be anything okay i'm going to give you two restaurants one's really low end but fantastic and one's really high end and fantastic so awesome both in new york so cat's deli in new york is where they filmed that famous when harry met sally scene where she has the orgasm in in the yeah. restaurant that's in Cat's Deli, and they make a Reuben's sandwich. Um, and it is just, well, I've got another one after this. And it is just like, it's alarmingly delicious. You'll pay quite Orgasmically a lot. Orgasmically delicious. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's what she was eating, I think, <laughs> yeah. at, the time, at the time of the orgasm. Um, yeah, so it, it's kind of, you know, it's got its gherkins and the salt beef and kind of all kinds of other stuff. It's the size of kind of two fists, you know, and it's just... Honestly, my wife was, is just outrageously jealous when I go to New York because she knows I'm going to go straight to Cat's Deli. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's honestly just completely delicious. I mean, the experience of being in Cat's is just whatever, right? But that particular sandwich is amazing. And also, if we're just going to, uh, on, a, on a very similar path to that, there's a little place, a uh, tiny place that's been around, you know, long before I was born. I think it was erected in the either 50s or 60s. Uh, called Le, the Select Le Select Burger. The chef there, who's unfortunately passed away now, was called Marius, and they make this Marius special uh, double cheeseburger with bacon. And it oh. is just there's, there's nothing special about it, by the way. But it's just I don't know what it is. It's not special, you know, fancy brioche bun. It's not special bacon. It's, there's nothing special about it. But the way in which it's it's honestly. I think I've had four of those in a day before just because you just you just can't get enough of them. So there's that. That's that's a hidden gem as well. Uh and then on the more high end side of things, um, I was 
lucky enough to be treated to dinner uh, by a good friend of mine in New York the other night at a restaurant called Four Charles. Four Four Charles, like four, King Charles. yeah, Four yeah. Charles, yeah, four, yeah. yeah, the number Four Charles. Let me tell you something. You wouldn't want to eat there every night. You, you, you I suspect you wouldn't survive the year. But it's <laughs> again, they 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 do a, a bacon cheeseburger that you kind of cut in quarters and have that as like a starter, and then they bring out this. Oh my goodness, they bring out these kind of crab claws diced up in the shell. Yeah, yeah. Oh delicious sauce you just drench it in then they they're known for the porterhouse beef and i think um if my master chef days serve me correctly that it, it it's boiled or, or broiled and then seared because it's it's like so consistently pink the whole way through great big piece of meat and and, and it's kind of diced quite thinly they call it the english cut actually because they serve it like you would have roast beef and it's just like it just melts in your mouth it's so delicious and then they bring you this porterhouse like sandwich that you drench in this sauce it's a really high-end restaurant but it serves a bunch of stuff that you know you wouldn't expect to be sounds like mouth-watering it's amazing it's like proper amazing i love food oh. if you haven't already noticed um i just i just <laughs> just adore good food um and then there's god what else did they bring that was delicious creamy like creamy delicious creamed spinach with like roasted cheese on the top uh and, and like macaroni cheese and all these sauces anyway so that if you're in new york and you can get yourself i think i heard somewhere there's an 18 month waiting list which which is oh, you know, wow great well my, my my friend weasels his way in all kinds of places I, I don't really know how he does it to be <laughs> honest but we were lucky enough to get a table but but for charles if you're in new york or you're going to new york in the future book it it 100%. is yeah yeah it sold is, me it's just um it was wildly delicious oh my god it sounds amazing yeah okay, it was great 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 tip thanks so much Spencer yeah. right our penultimate chapter then Excellent. chapter six is your worst travel experience I got a bit ahead of myself when I was fortunate enough to do well in the marathon de Sable. I came came 69th overall and I thought well I can do anything now um, and I signed up to another one, like almost immediately, 250 kilometers, five days, same thing, Arctic Sweden, um, up in the middle of nowhere. So I heard it's, you know, minus 36, two and a half, two and a half thousand meters of incline, big, like snowshoes. So super slow and, you know, sleeping rough on like reindeer hides. And I just thought, yeah, you know, I've done the the mental heat one i'll do the i'll do the cold one that was the worst that day one was the so so compare it with kind of day one in the desert that's of course tough but you're running and you've got you know people around you and you're getting to know people and you're enjoying it and you're not pushing yourself to the absolute limit that you collapse because you know you've got five days of it so you're actually having a good time this was not a good time so this was just horrific so i got to the top of the mountain on day one and I took my glove off to take a selfie at the top of the mountain because it was, I mean, again, nothing against Arctic Sweden, one of the most beautiful places I've ever been, but just yeah. rough, right? Rough this race. And I got to the, I got to the top and, I, and my hand didn't recover for the whole day. Like just, just, it was only out for 20 seconds and it just was, it was just effed for the whole day. I couldn't get sensation back in my hand. I couldn't eat properly. Um, <sighs> The first day was 61 kilometers, something like that. 
and we got to the ends and just like you think you'd be happy to get to the end you're just not yeah. you're just really angry like really angry <laughs> um i had a really bad cough and i was just incredibly uncomfortable didn't sleep very well lots of people left after the first night of this one it was honestly it was so rough i can't even tell. it was just hideous and also because like because the people in front of you are faster and the people below you are slower you're on your own for the whole thing right so like i i was because it's kind of a single file thing because there's a, a path that's been dredged for you so it's like there's no camaraderie whatsoever right you're not chatting to anyone you're on your right. own L- again listening to nothing just just and and like four or five hours into the first day when you realize you've got another 10 hours you're just like i'm not having a good time doing this at all like this is shit i hate it like, like and, and that's just in your head it's like i'm not like there is no point in me doing this like i'm on my own i may as well be in in like in the middle of arctic sweden on my own because that's what's happening yeah. And like you get to the end. And anyway, yeah, so I didn't have fun at all. I really hated it. I would never do that race again. Went into day two almost reluctantly. I just thought to myself, well, I can't. I was raising money again for the Michael Matthews Foundation. I was like, well, I can't kind of pull the ripcord. Although lots of people, literally like, I think a hundred people like left on day one. And it was kind of like, okay, like this is a really, really hard thing to do. And I, uh, yeah, just just went into day two. Cough got worse. Starts to feel quite feverish. But we'd done the two really hard days. Then the rest of it was flat. Uh, tested me for COVID, and I had COVID. So no, so I'd, I'd essentially done the first two days with COVID. I didn't know oh that I had God. COVID. So you, oh my God, I can't believe that you did that with COVID as well. So, so I'd done 105 <gasps> kilometers at this stage um, with, with in minus 36 with two and a half k of incline. <laughs> And I, I didn't feel myself, right? I, I didn't, I, I, and I, I was a bit angry and a bit pissed off, like the whole time, which is unusual for me. I'm quite a positive person, and yeah, tested me for COVID, and I was like, well, we're literally in the middle of nowhere, so can because I didn't feel terrible. I just, I didn't feel great, right? But I could have easily carried on, and I just said, look, can I have a separate start time to everyone else? Like, if I leave an hour after the last person, then I'll be on my own. I've been isolated anyway, running this thing so i'll remain isolated for the rest of it and they were just like we can't send you into these conditions knowing that you have covid and i was just like um well i have been uh <laughs> running for the last two days so shouldn't make too much difference and they were just like no what you don't understand is or what you probably haven't thought about is covid is a like respiratory thing if you have proper covid and you go up these mountains in these low temperatures it can cause serious damage to your lungs so uh so yeah i i stayed on my own then for a few days in the middle of uh middle of arctic sweden uh to isolate before uh i tested negative and and flew home but yeah you won't catch me um up there again i don't think (laughs) god what an unbelievable experience yeah maybe what maybe one to consign to the history history books yes we are now then on to the final chapter of your travel diary, Spencer. Chapter seven, the destination that is at the top of your travel bucket list. Where have you not been that you're desperate to go to? I'd love to do more traveling. I think with really young kids, it's quite difficult. But as a family, we're keen to travel together. I think when, you know, when Otto's three or four and the rest of them are a bit more grown up, I think that would be a great time to do kind of annual trips together. Um, I'd love to go to Japan. I'm fascinated by Japan. 
Um, I love sushi, but that's not why I want to go to Japan. I think it would just be like a, a fantastic experience.、Um, my parents went quite recently and said it was just great. I would love to do South America. Which I've never been to, kind of Argentina, I think would be fantastic. I know that Mike had a wonderful experience climbing Aconcagua uh, in uh, in Argentina. I'd love to go to Argentina.、Um, I'd love to go to Brazil.、I、haven't been to Brazil either.、Um, so I've kind of, for somebody that's done a fair amount, I I feel like I I have kind of stuck to my to what I know a bit, and I would love to expand. Uh, my kind of knowledge and horizons,、uh, you know, and 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 do more traveling, just not in Arctic Sweden. <laughs> oh, thank <laughs> you so much, Spencer Matthews. Those were your travel diaries. It has been so much fun chatting to you today. Thank you for giving us all the wanderlust. Thank, thanks so much. A great pleasure. And、uh, yeah, you were brilliant. Thank you. Oh, a massive thank you to Spencer Matthews for such an honest conversation in so many ways. He is such a lovely guy. If you'd like to hear more from Spencer and his wife Vogue, you can tune into their hit podcast, Spencer and Vogue: A Global Original. And don't forget to check out his low and no alcohol drinks brand, Clinko. And with that, it's a wrap for season eight. Thank you so much for tuning in each week, everyone, and for spreading the word. It's been a really wonderful season, thanks to some fantastic guests, and of course, your support too. And a memorable one for me—the last one before I have a baby. I've been pregnant the whole time recording this season, so I'll look back at it probably very fondly. I hope, but with mixed mixed feelings, because I was very nauseous through some of these interviews that you've been listening to as well. I'll be back in early spring. The gap between this season and next will probably be a little longer than usual, as I'll be taking some time off as maternity leave. But do stay in touch in the meantime over on Instagram. I'm at Holly Rubenstein. I'll be posting updates about the podcast and probably about family travel too over there. If you're interested, all being well. And if you can't wait until next year, remember there are over 90 episodes of the podcast to catch up on now or to revisit. I love revisiting old episodes of podcasts I like. So yeah, they're all there if you. Want to listen? A huge thank you again, everyone, and I will speak to you soon. Take care. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb, and what a great partnership! If you're a longtime listener of the Travel Diaries, you probably know that we love to put our home on Airbnb when we're traveling. Like. Last autumn, when we took the family to Puglia, we put our house on Airbnb when otherwise it would just be sitting empty, which meant that we earned some extra money that went towards our flights and maybe some souvenirs too. Hosting on Airbnb for us is also a family affair. My mum is an Airbnb superhost; she regularly has guests stay in her little chalet in her garden, and my dad, who lives in France, has his home on Airbnb so that when he comes back to visit, he is earning some extra money while he's away. 
My dad is 80 and he only started hosting on Airbnb a couple of years ago. So hopefully that shows you how straightforward the whole experience is. He found it so easy to list his house that I think he's got all his pals signing up now too. And it really is straightforward. You can choose whether you want to rent out your entire home or just some rooms. Alex and I, for example, list our spare bedroom and that works really well for us. So if you have a trip coming up and you want to earn some extra money while you're away, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. That's airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.